this week's episode of the Main Idea Podcast, where today I have the pleasure of sitting down with Richard Bressler. A quick reminder to the fans of this podcast, if you enjoy these episodes, please take 30 seconds to leave a five-star review on Apple or Spotify. This helps the show generate organic growth and allow me to continually bring on amazing guests. Also, there are now timestamps in the show notes, so feel free to jump around to the segment that interests you most, although I recommend listening to the episodes in their entirety. Richard Bressler is widely recognized as the first American student of Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, which is detailed in his book, Worth Defending, How Gracie Jiu-Jitsu Saved My Life, which Richard and I discuss on this podcast. For nearly 20 years, he worked closely alongside Horian Gracie, helping to grow jiu-jitsu from the Gracie garages in Southern California to the early days of the UFC. Richard has a unique perspective on the gentle art, and I can admit his wisdom, as demonstrated through this conversation, has worn off on me. He has permanently impacted the way that I think about jiu-jitsu, its philosophy, and the applications of self-defense. Without the love and spirit of the Gracie family and practitioners like Richard, it's very difficult to say where the art of jiu-jitsu would be today. Without further ado, Richard Bressler. Awesome. Well, Richard, thank you so much. Uh, no one who's listening now will get to entertain the fact that we just spent 15 minutes trying to figure the audio out. So thank you for being uh, a black belt in technical uh, difficulties. And thank you for taking the time to be here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so I, I finished the book. It was an awesome read as someone who is enthralled in the journey of jiu-jitsu. And one thing that just it stuck out to me a lot throughout this whole story that I'd love to hear your insights on is the level of mastery that you've been around for so long with the growth of jiu-jitsu in the United States, your integral part in that directly, and exposure to Horian and the Gracie family and then also yourself now, having been doing this for 40 years. I mean, you are a, a master among a small group of people in the United States that has that type of experience. So what does mastery mean to you? <laughs> it's a nice word. <laughs> you know, uh, first of all, I put it up on my screen too, so we both Oh, perfect. Yeah, there we go. The, the whole thing with mastery it, it's, it's, I don't know if you ever really master something because mastering something means you're constantly, you're constantly practicing what you've been doing. Because if you don't, if you don't practice, you, you lose a certain part. But what I have mastered, the closest thing to me what's become most important to me is to pass what I've learned on because the further you get from the people like Horian and boys Hicks and the, the family, the more diluted it seems to be getting in terms of technique and application in terms of, what the real reason that they came here to share jujitsu. Right. They came to share an art and it's kind of becoming a sport. Right. And so it's kind of hard to, I'm focusing on mostly mastering my teaching 
because that's what's needed the most yeah. to, to, to get people and keep people interested that aren't the athletic type. Right. Because jujitsu, the way it was um, introduced to me, is you don't need strength, speed, coordination. It's just it's something that the average person can do. And it's become the sportive thing that like, oh, yeah, I want to get out there and compete. And I'm not really drawn to those type of students, and they're not drawn to me. Well, that was so, one thing that was powerful for me reading the book. It, it, it was interesting. I felt like a lot of the book you were speaking directly at me because I come from the other side, but I come from an athletic background, um, growing up competing and skiing, and then a life as a personal trainer, and then finding this sport where – sport, right? Where I can art. go and put all the things to the test is what it felt like. And right. in the very beginning of, of jiu-jitsu, I mean, everyone has that story of you know you at the waterbed and going over to Horian's house and sitting in your car just in tears, and this guy coming up to you and being like, hey, I'm going to help you out. And that, that pivotal moment – I had a moment like that too, where I was humbled. It, it challenged everything that I thought I knew about who I was as a person, as an athlete, toughness, grit, all that stuff. Because someone, a fraction of my size, just absolutely dominated me for 15 minutes. And I walked out of there going, I need to know more about whatever the hell that was. And as I went through, I learned more that there was this big lesson for me to unathlete myself because it only served me so much in my abilities because there was tension and aggression and all these things tied to athleticism that are very applicable in a sport arena. And I had to begin to try to un undo that so that I could get the art part of it and actually understand how to calm down, how to breathe, how to understand where my body was in space, these kind of things. And it never even dawned on me, especially until I read your book, how instrumental this self-defense aspect was and, and sh basically should be because it gives the smaller guy, maybe the person who doesn't play sports, doesn't have that level of confidence, an opportunity to truly protect themselves in the world. And I felt after reading it like, maybe there is a big part that we're missing. How do you get that messaging that seems to be something that really did come up from Brazil with the Gracies and was the, you know, the pinpoint of what you were all teaching and learning back then? How do you get that to still spread now with the growth of flow grappling and ADCC and how big the UFC is and how many athletes and, and people there are coming into this sport now? Because it seems important uh, to maintain that. Um, it is. And that's, I, I think awareness is the first thing. And I think the book has really helped because the book has helped. And what you had said, like you made a comment about that. It spoke directly to you or something to that effect. I've been, I've had so many people reach out, especially at higher levels mm -hmm. that have said the same thing. And one of my neighbors, I told him my book and, and he said something to me 
I saw him like a couple weeks later and he goes, wow, Richard, he said, that was so deep and it was so, you were so vulnerable when yes. you wrote that. And I said, if you talk to me out in the street, you meet me or at jujitsu school or wherever it is you meet me, that's the same way I'm going to be. In other words, I, I do best with one-on-one -on -one conversations because I'm looking for an intimate kind of exchange with a person. Right. So I, and since I had private classes, I mean, for years with arguably the best teacher in the family, um, that's how I learned to do jujitsu. So I do that privately and in a group class and when people reach out and talk to me, I mean, it's, it's a, one of the things that I remember back in the late eighties, early nineties, when I was kind of like struggling with where I was going, what I was doing, who I wanted to be, I got pretty sick and and this is after I was in jujitsu. And one of the things that I went to this chiropractor's office and he treated me and I noticed in his office, he had a bunch of audio cassettes, you know, back in my day, they had these little cassette things they put in the music player. Anyways, they were from a club that was, and he listened to, he had a lot of uh, self-improvement things. And it said, and I started listening. I borrowed some from him and then I joined this club and I started listening. And the theme was find something you love and then find a way to make a living at it. Mm -hmm. And I went, well, gosh, I'd love to teach jujitsu, but I'll never be good enough. Right. And, and then I remember when I got my first class before I was certified, I was a semi-private class. And then I got in the first group of you know, there were four of us through this instructor certification. And I said, this was it. And so I haven't changed the way that I've done things. And because it is done sportively on such a huge um, arena right now that I have changed, like I wrote down what I wanted to do. I said, I wanted to teach jujitsu. I didn't know how I was going to do it, but I want to do it. Now I realize what my next and almost maybe the meaning for my life right now is to share what was taught to me. And so how many, there's over a million people doing jujitsu worldwide, correct? Yeah. Easily. Yeah, I think so. Okay. So, and we've sold maybe 3,500 books, audio, whatever. I have a huge market of people that I want to reach to yeah. tell them as far as what was done, whether they can do it or not, at least I'm putting, I'm planting the seed with them just to say, look, this is what was done. And, and I want to do my best, my little part to share that with as many people as possible. So, I mean, the book, it, it's a great place to start because it does, you know, it, it made me, 
I've been on this journey of doing jujitsu and falling in love with it and, and loving and looking forward to traveling to different places in the world and finding a school to go and train at while I'm there and the community and meeting people and reading this, this certain parts really made me think differently about how I think about or how I go into training because like I mentioned earlier you know I've I've grown up not liking to lose. I want to win at everything that I do. And that's, it's a hardwired mindset, right? It's one that I'm aware of, but it's there. And it drives a lot of what I do and how I do it. And when that competitive nature is always brought onto the mats, you can tease yourself into thinking that you're constantly improving when you're winning. But it's a terrible approach for two reasons. One, you won't see opportunities to learn and get better, especially as you build habits to get better at winning. So you'll mm -hmm. just repeat the same things to get the same result, the, be the, the quote, better you get. But the other thing that this made me think a lot about is the other students that are there or the person that might be in their first month of ever trying this out. Or, y you know, y the mats are so beautiful because everyone checks their baggage at the door and they're there. But that doesn't mean that, you know, you don't get the backstory of why someone might be there. They might be there for some really serious reasons, that they've been really bullied at work. Or, you know, someone picks on them in the parking structure at work when they're leaving every single day. Or something that's trailing from childhood. And they're not going to stand up on a pedestal and tell everyone that before class starts. So if you ruin their opportunity to, to f fall in love with this and find consistency as a more experienced person, you're actually doing a disservice to the person who's trying to learn and get better and get involved. And so it, it really did, I was surprised at how much it shifted the way that it, it made me want to approach aspects of my training. And I think that that is a place where like, <laughs> you know, mastery, it, it, it can be that exact thing. Your relationship to your ability to communicate values of the sport to people that are trying to understand it yeah. values of the art that people are trying to understand yeah you know you you said something important that you said you don't know why anyone else comes in the door you know why you came in the door and but a lot of people come in the door i lately probably the past few years, I'm starting to attract more women to come into my class. Yeah. And the women that I, and I'm not getting like, or should I say, very rarely get like that. You know, I have one woman that comes and trains, she's traveling, she does Pilates. I call her like superwoman because <laughs> she she can roll. She's still a white belt, but she can roll and roll and she never seems to get tired. And she has a very good attitude and she stays relaxed. But there's other women that have come. There's another woman that started with me a little more than a year ago. And the one started a few months ago. And the one that started a few months ago came into the center. She took, because they teach stand-up and fitness, you know, she came in for a, a two-week trial. And then he said, hey, you know, come take Richard's class. And, you know, and she's, you know very insecure I, I could see it I could feel it and uh, and we talked after the class and 
because like me, I was very insecure. It's like the move that I did, was it right? I'm, oh my God, am I going to get better? Whatever. And so I told her, I said, you know, I wrote a book and I said, you might like this book. She read my book. She was like, oh my God, it just opened my eyes. And, and she started taking my class. You know, she bought two geese um, and she's, you know, and she's doing her best and, and you can just see it. And those are the kind of people that really, that I'm, I'm, I feel best about attracting because in my opinion, those are the people who need it the most. Right. Like me, I needed it. I needed you just, I didn't know I needed it. Right. And, and I also have an attitude of cooperation with the students because I'm not in a, a competitive school. I tell people, I said, look, the most in part, important part of jujitsu for me, and I think for a lot of people is defense. Yeah. This is because if you can defend yourself adequately, that'll give you an opportunity to have an offense. Yeah. And you also want to make sure when you defend yourself, you're not using your physical attributes to which, save energy. Yeah. To save energy and also to learn because if you're fast and you're strong and you can guy goes for a choke and you're just like all these little kind of movements and you're strong and you can power out of it. How can you, and I wrote something that gets very similar in my book. How can you show someone else who doesn't have your attributes? Totally. So the guys that, that well, I've been and, teaching. And that's only, that's only valuable until you run up against someone who's your equal size and equal physical abilities, right? Because then it becomes who understands the technique the best, who can manage their energy the best, and defend themselves the best to create opportunities to either get up and walk away, get up and leave or attack a submission or something like that. But if you're always, and this is like, you know, I, I struggled with this a lot in the beginning. If you're, if you're naturally just relying on those physical attributes and people are, are smaller than you or something like that, then you get this false sense that you're developing a skill when you're not, you're just overpowering people. Because like you mentioned in the book, uh, because they're not as big as you, right? Like size is a big factor. And so that's great until you get to someone who is equal. And so you have to learn that early because I think that we all, we all do have a, a responsibility to be teachers in some regard as you advance through and as you learn more, right? Because one, you're only those are your training partners. That's who you have around you and, and, and they have you. So if you're not helping each other get better, then it's, uh, it's not a fair exchange. So learning these things and then being able to apply and teach from a place of, from like a humble place, not a, a, a I'm better than you and you need to listen to me kind of thing. Right. Of the, course. It is, a sport that it, it, it's an art form that really does have the opportunity to truly protect someone better than anything else that's around. 
Ja. Men in the in the book you you have a funny story about uh a student who you had to ask to leave eventually after repeatedly not heeding your advice on on calming down do you find that less and less or do you still see that it, it seemed like in the beginning of jujitsu's growth there was kind of a, a target on its back right and and so Orion <laughs> spent it seems like a lot of his free time um wearing that target and then defending it and now this sport has grown but it also has these other applications where people feel like there's a potential future for them within it if they can get to a certain skill level so do you feel like that still happens from school to school that you get that machismo approach where someone's really trying to prove themselves or discredit jujitsu um i think it's less and less i i it, it was very rare that that it happened i mean it, it's it happened very rare in the whole, I've been teaching now for um, close to 30 years and I didn't see it happen very much at all where I've actually had to, you know, one, I've had to have somebody like go easy, but before I've really asked them to leave, you know, very rare, but you, you still have to remind people like, you know, that are bigger than their training partners. I've had guys that have come in and they'll, and they'll want to spar and they're 50 pounds heavier than their training partners and they just kind of manhandle them. Right. And I'll go up and I'll and say this, and a lot of times I have said it in a class. I go, you know what they call what you're doing, don't you? And he goes, what? I said, it's being a bully. You know, right. and I said, and I won't tolerate bullies. And so, you know, it kind of, because sometimes telling someone to relax they don't get it you mean and, like instructing cueing someone to calm down in the, yes that's yeah, right yeah because that's the word that if, if you go into my class and say, what's what's the one word that you'll hear me say over and over again and it the word people will sit there and go relax you know right. because <laughs> it's something that you know has to people have to be reminded and i just say look it's not that you're it just the, the opposite of tense of, yeah. you know, so, and I went to um, a therapist back in the eighties and he was an NLP therapist, the most brilliant therapist I've ever been to. His name was Dr. Dossi. I mentioned him in my book. Yeah. It sounded like he really, he, he like, <laughs> very kindly put you in your place with open-ended questions. It was impressive yes. uh, hearing that section, recalling him just leaving you kind of forced to think about what you're actually asking him. Yeah. So, and he would say when, because, you know, I was dealing with that, that I thought were fears. I told myself were fears. And when he would put me in a different state, he would say, you're calm, relaxed, and alert. So, you know, I'm telling people to relax, but you also, and, and you want to stay calm, but you want to stay alert to what's happening. And it's like, I was just, I was talking to a woman the other day, and I told her, like, I held her wrist. And as I held her wrist, she kept her arm kind of extended. 
And I said, you know, which means I had the arm. I said, okay, right. so relax. And she goes, I said, no, relax. And then finally, you know, her arm dropped and my arm dropped with her. I said, that's relaxed. So people don't even know when they're, when they're doing something that they're not relaxed. And I, yeah. I, I just told, there was a guy in my class who has a woman outweighed by, gosh, probably easily 70 pounds. And they were rolling. He's a blue belt. She's a white belt. And so I was keeping a good eye on him. And he came inside control and had his arm across her neck. And I was just, I took his arm. I tried to lift it up and he was just like fighting me. And I just looked at him. I went, and I lifted the arm up and I put it on the other side of her neck. And I, I said, okay. I said, you have that kind of size on her. So I went with her next and I said, watch the way I roll with her. And I was just like, I said, so what? And I gave a speech to the class and I said, people say they think they're relaxed. They kind of have that in their head, but they're not. So I said, this is the deal. When you're rolling with someone who you have that kind of size on or you're an upper belt, I said, pretend they're your son, your daughter that's about eight years old. And you're just showing them how to move. If you're a blue belt, you kind of know the gist about how to, and you don't want to hurt this little kid right? because she's a white belt. And yes, she goes, I, I didn't need your help. I said, look, whether you, whether you thought you did or not, you know, <laughs> it's my job to, you know, one, it's going to help him. It's going to make him better. And she'll be able to focus on, technique there's a time when people are going to come and mash you it's just going to happen but maybe after you start to develop some skill so yeah, it, it it's constantly it's, reminding them tension is a really interesting thing i think psychologically and physically like you you can you know hold a lot of trauma in your life a lot of tension a lot of apprehension um that can be linked to lack of self-confidence there can just be insecurities in general and they really magnify when you're on the mat. I mean, it's you can tell when you're rolling with someone and they have some something that they're not dealing with, right? And you can feel it. it. You can physically feel the tension of them not being able to chill. And this is, I mean, here's why I think that everyone, everyone should do jujitsu. The self-defense, people who need it for self-defense, but also people that may be aggressive, people that think a lot of themselves or people that are just interested in picking up a new art form and a new way to stay healthy, is that it will, no matter who you are, it's going to teach you something at some point. And if you're someone who is just tense all the time and don't even know it, it will expose that and show mm -hmm. you that there is some onion layers to peel back in this journey towards relaxation. That when you go into a, a school, right, you can always tell if, if let's say the belts weren't there and or it was a no gi day or something like that and you walked in within five to ten minutes of watching people roll you know who the most skilled people are one by by what they're doing but the look on their face right that utter relaxation mouth closed breathing controlled through the nose calm in all positions it's really something uh spectacular to see because it's this it's the art form that did that to them it took them through this 
journey and brought them to a place where you can stand taller, relax in, in heightened situations. You talk a couple times about uh, situations like in the street, right? Here's a guy who's highly skilled in, in jiu-jitsu, right? Learned from the best that have ever done it. Walking across the street, you get in the road rage situation with that guy, and he basically tells you to go fuck yourself. And in that moment, you have the clarity to know that it's not a situation that you should deal with, right? To de-escalate, to try to stay as calm as you can, and then walk away. How valuable is that? To have been taught by this art form to be able to be in that situation and not totally just crumble or do something stupid like get up in the guy's face and try to one-up him. Because you might both go to jail, someone might have a knife, you know, you never know how that's going to go. And it's these lessons on the mat and relaxation and clarity and awareness that allow you to handle that the way that you did. I think it, it's so cool. Yeah. And be, being able to impart that on your students. Absolutely. I, I remember I went over to uh, Gracie Academy a few years ago, and Hiran was talking to a class. I forget exactly where it was, but there was quite a few people in the class. And Hiran was saying, so what happens, guys? You're outside someplace at the beach, whatever, and some guy comes up and pinches your girl's ass. What do you do? And there's always a few guys, ah, go over and kick their ass. Yeah, I'll kick their ass. I'm like, okay, what do you do? Yeah, I, I, you know, most of the guys, there's, or a few, at least a few that, you know, they want to escalate. And, and hit on says, well, you know, and talks about the things, you don't know what's going to happen. And just be, and I realize if this was Brazil, they'd mix it up. You pinch a girl's ass, you know, especially if her boyfriend's there or husband, you're going to, they're going to mix it up. They're going to get into a fight. He says, but we live in one of the most litigious societies ever. Yeah. <laughs> not to mention whether a person gets sued or not to have a, even if you could kick their ass, even if you're a tough guy, even if it's hit on Gracie, he said, look, just because the guy is, he did something like that because he's ignorant or whatever issue has got him. He says, is it worth it to beat somebody up, to possibly go to jail, to get sued, whatever it is, is it worth it? You know, yeah. and he, he just said, unless you're being attacked, assaulted, or you're protecting you or your loved one, do your best to walk away. Because when I think I told a story in the book when I, you know, and I just had my hands up as they were talking to the guy. Yeah, and before he left, he, he calls me a punk ass bitch. Yeah. And then, and then I, and then I, and I, I, I thanked him. Which, which, which was such, was, such a, like such a backhanded comment. I, I loved that. Yeah. Because I knew when I read it, by that point, I, you know, I hadn't spoken to you yet. But by that point, I had a, a feeling of your sense of humor or your, your demeanor and i could tell that in that moment you definitely said it to him passive aggressively and i know that that hurt him more than 
<laughs> I thought that was pretty good. Yeah. I mean, you know, and that's the only thing I could think of when he said it. I was just like, oh, wow, thanks. Yeah. Um, well, you, you do a good job in the book of being transparent and honest about your relationship to fear just in general, like um, at, through your whole life, despite this. It's not a panacea, right? Jiu-jitsu. And you, even in that moment, you talk about the fear that you felt, right? You had this conversation in your head of like, oh my, you know, I'm a X degree black belt. I should totally handle it. But there's still that, that fear. It's, that's something that I think people don't, they're not willing to address, especially if you're like a macho person, right? And it, it's not to promote weakness but or something but like it's okay to be afraid sometimes and then well, to use use that fear to either learn or to change your behaviors the first time after doing jujitsu when it first came to me i was working for horian um a couple days a week when he was selling his inaction videos and my job, you know, was to go to his house, um, take the videos to the post office, you know, and, and drop them off at the post office. And I remember one time I was in the post office and I caught this, this woman that was in there with her boyfriend. We, our eyes caught each other. So, and, and the guy saw me looking at his girl and, and, but she was looking at me, so I was just returning, you know, and he goes, what are you looking at? And I said, I'm looking at her. And I don't even know what he said after that. And I felt like, dude, she's with you. What, what, what you know? Yeah. And, uh, but I remember that my whole body, I just like, I was a purple belt and I kind of like, I could feel like that fight or flight thing coming on. I didn't mm -hmm. run away, but I kind of, I got my whole body like, and I remember going back to Horian and saying, dude, I don't think I deserve a purple belt. Why? He says, well, I was told him the story and I said, I, and I was scared. And he goes, Richard, you know, every time I fight, I'm scared. But it didn't stop me from getting in the ring. He said, right. did you run? Did you freeze? I said, no, I, I just, he said, okay. He said, it's a, it's a natural thing. Like, and Dr. Dacia, you know, when I talked to him and like, he just said, look, you go up a, uh, on a mountain and go up to a cliff, you're going to have a healthy respect or fear about getting too close. You know, so it's just, you know, it, it's, it's something that I thought would be erased when I got to that certain level, because in my mind, I went, well, these guys, jujitsu, man, they kick anyone's ass. They're not afraid. Right. And it, it made me realize that, you know, and then I remember I talked to Hickson about the same thing. He told me the same thing. So, you know, it's just something that a lot of people don't even realize that they have fear. I mean, how many times, you probably hear it in movies or you may even talk to somebody. What are you afraid of? I'm not afraid of anything. Right. Yeah. Okay. Sure. <laughs> Hope that works for you. 
But I think what was interesting for me before I did jujitsu was that I would hear about it, and it, well, this is strange that I would hear this from a lot of the people that would talk to me. Is they'd be like, "Oh, you know, if it ever if it ever jumped off, I people wouldn't even know what hit him kind of thing." And th- this is coming from people that were training actively, having that you know white belt bravado confidence about what they're doing. I I mean, still to this day, like I, you know, I train four times a week. I absolutely love it. And every day that I go in, I learn more about what I don't know. I honestly think than what I do know. And what I've come to the conclusion at this point in my journey, and I, I plan on doing this for the rest of my life, like I said, I love it, is that regardless of being physically fit and athletic and training nonstop, I don't want anything to do with an altercation. I just don't. It's not like... Th- <laughs> The risk-reward is so skewed in the wrong direction from a legal standpoint, but also just how much you don't have on who the other person is when you meet anybody, right? There's people that you know for your whole life and then find out things about them you didn't know. So you're going to roll the dice on this interaction with one person who you know nothing about, and you're going to assume that whatever skills you possess are going to way more than theirs in an adrenaline filled situation adrenaline to the degree to which you would never experience on the mats because of the uncertainty when you train with your fellow jujitsu practitioners within the confines of an academy there's a degree of safety that you just get there's a professor there you don't want to truly hurt each other unless maybe you have some vendetta against somebody else and you guys got to hash that out anyway but if you're in a parking lot if you're in a, a shopping center, if you're walking down the street, if you're on the road and someone cuts you off and you push that down the line to this place where you're chest to chest, it is a complete dice roll. Yeah. And it, it must have been really interesting seeing Horian delivering this, this messaging to you, someone who is probably more primed than anybody else to receive it to the level that you did right from the the confidence the drug use the need for self-defense all these things he's giving you exactly what you need but at the same time horian's also representing the physical fight aspect of it on the daily to people that are coming in as boxers as kempo fighters as karate guys challenging him to a, a to an actual fight where in some cases as he said he had to repeatedly defend himself to the same person in short amounts of time. How did you absorb those two things coming at you? Getting the, the true aspect of the art of jujitsu, but then also seeing this physical representation and the, the more like fight or flight aspect of it. That's a good question. One that I don't know if I have the answer to. That's okay. You know, like like I tell students, I, I my introduction to jujitsu and my first few years were so much different than what people get now. Yeah. Just because of the self defense aspect to it, and like what I tell people when I started jujitsu was what we called what I called the wild west, because. Martial arts were striking arts, period. Right. So 
you know, when Horian basically gave me carte blanche to said, look, I go, go find the toughest guy you can and bring him over if he wants to fight. I'm like, wow. <laughs> I mean, how many people, you know, yeah. can, can do that, you know, and also to realize, cause I remember I did an interview with Hidon and Henner on their YouTube channel. Um, and, and hit him with saying, ah, I don't know how I feel about, you know, me trying to antagonize somebody to bring them in. Right. But then I, he also said, but you realize that when they fought, they weren't going to get hurt. They were going to get their ass kicked, but they weren't going to get hurt. And that's right. what happened. Oh, as to not worry about like the repercussions. That's right. Yeah. They, although they're in their... You know, everyone, when they start out, they, you know, they just kind of shadow and, right. and all of a sudden when he clinches and goes underneath, uh, everyone, it gets a little faster and a little faster yeah. and a little faster. And the guy's going, okay, this is bullshit. And then, you know, they start, you know, doing their thing. So it, when I saw that, I was just like, wow. I mean, you develop confidence just from watching him. And I remember when I went to early on, we went to. Um, Benny Urquidez school out in the valley and this is early 80s where Benny says to Horian he said look what you do is really good but I don't think it's the art I think it's you and Horian goes no it's the art Richard go put your gi on and I was just like <laughs> put my gi on you know I have like less than a year experience and especially and how much in that year did I spend in the clinch you know, covering right. up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when he when he says, go ahead and do that, and and then I clinched the person and pulled him down, it was just like, okay, I didn't get knocked out. That, and that was my biggest concern is that the guy was going to see me coming in and, and I didn't have a whole lot of technique, but he didn't know what to expect. He was watching the thing with Benny and, and Horian, but he didn't have an idea because they were starting against him. I started here like this, and Horian said, look, when I say go, just shoot. cover up yeah. and shoot. And I clinched, and you know, and then they stopped it because he said, look, it doesn't matter what happens next. He didn't get knocked out, and that's who your art is. Your art is totally. a stand-up. Totally, so, and, and in the, the application of that, I mean, let's say that you're – let's say you're a father. You're walking around with your family, and you have a little kid, and someone comes, and they accost you, or they try to – attack you or something like that and and maybe you're you're the smaller guy and so it's not a situation where you're trying to roundhouse kick the guy in the face but you can get in the clinch get down to the ground and then wait and you can hold and defend yourself while somebody else arrives while other bystanders notice and come in i mean that aspect of it is not one that you really think about too often in the rolling environment of the technique and rolling and technique and rolling, but this ability to prolong, which jujitsu is really good at. If you can trap, David Ruiz is uh, in my eyes, the master of this, right? I get, to, I'm fortunate enough to learn from him about trapping, but he will trap your arm and it, it scrambles your brain because everything that you thought you knew about what you were going to do next now doesn't work and you have to plan B, but that could take three minutes. That could take five minutes. And that's amazing. That's huge. That's the ability between protecting your loved ones or not by not even doing anything aggressive. It's by doing something tactical. 
and that's I, how much could you pay for that right it's invaluable yeah i the last couple of weeks i've been going over punch block from the guard mm -hmm. on the bottom someone's throwing punches and a couple different scenarios one is just defending different positions and i'll tell them i say guys you know usually one of the things i've that's stuck in my mind is what Henner calls, I think the 110 second rule. And it's anywhere from 60 to 90, maybe to 100 seconds or so, where if someone's barraging you, you have to defend. You have to let them get their aggression out. And you're not doing this by being offensive, you're doing this by being defensive. First thing I said was the most important part of jujitsu is defense. So I said, if you can just be in that position, show I was going over the different things from the guard. I said, you're not gonna, if you get a, a possible up kick, if the person comes up, fine, you have an opportunity. But other than that, don't count on it. <laughs> that, that's right. I mean, other than that, you're not going to try to get into a punching scenario when someone's on top throwing punches, just simply because of gravity, and because they might be bigger than you. So, so I said, so you do this for the first minute or so. And then I showed a couple finishing moves, but when you do the finishing move itself, I said, it's what should usually come from the Kimura or the triangle. And I says, it's still, if you set up the triangle and you go for it the way they're being taught in sports schools, remember someone's got an arm free. They're going to be trying to punch you. So I said, you have to think of that, you know, so there's so many aspects because one guy was doing it last night. And he goes, Richard, what about if I trap the arm like this? So whenever someone says that and I says, show me, I don't just sit there and want to see what you do. I want to feel what you're doing. So this guy has started his jujitsu with me, I think, uh, at least two plus two and a half years, maybe. And he's. He's a, a, a pretty good blue belt. You know, he's gotten very good and and he's learned to calm. Anyways, so I put me in the triangle and I said, hold my arm the way you were talking about. And he held my arm. I said, do you have it good? That's the one thing that Horian already said. It's like, put them, Are you ready? let them, that's right. Let them put you in this position so you can, you know, I said, he goes, yeah. I said, Are you sure? Yeah. So as soon as he held my arm like that, I got my arm up really easily and I was right in his face. And I said, look, palm strike in your nose, it's done. done. Your triangle means nothing to nothing. me. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. The um, Hoyler, I attended one of Hoyler's seminars he did recently in San Marcos last year. And we did a lot of the Gracie combative stand, like uh, upright stuff, which was- Direct Stand up. I, yeah, I wish that we did. Um, I wish you did it more. I can see why we do a lot more rolling. But anyway, I mean, we, we do enough of it. And after that seminar, uh, I was talking with one of our brown belts, Steve. And he's like, look, we're going to do a, a round, like basically between like a flow roll and a roll roll. So let's give it 60, 70%. He's like, but we're going to allow light open hand contact. And I was like, this is another one of those moments in my journey of jiu-jitsu where uh, like everything that I thought I knew just got flipped upside on its head. 
So we're going, and he's like, if I can just, he's like, remember this. And he is a ex-pro Bellator fighter. So the guy's is a, a monster, right? Mm-hmm. He goes, if I can touch your face, I can punch you in the face. If I can touch anywhere on your body, I can punch you there, elbow there, knee there. So as we go, it, it took all my, my years of relaxation and calm and pragmatism and everything, and it just destroyed it on a second. It made me tense. It made me looking for the opportunity of what to do next, of how to block myself, because I had never thought about protecting myself in this situation. And it was just the introduction of very light slaps to the forehead, the side of the neck. And it showed me in that moment, even within (laughs) the framework of jujitsu, there's a difference between rolling around with your buddies and and doing rounds and then protecting yourself from getting attacked by someone. And if someone is above you and they are throwing punches at your face, you have to protect yourself. And you don't protect yourself in that situation by going for a key lock or doing a triangle. It's not the most applicable way to do it, right? If you're lucky enough to get something like that or an upkick, fantastic, and do it and run. But the ability to block a punch and to frustrate the opponent and buy yourself time, it's very, very different. We did another one where he, same exact thing, but he, we had a someone who was doing a knife defense class, and so he just placed a plastic knife, a fake knife, about three feet away from us. And he's like, if one of us gets the knife, the round ends and we start again. Just to, again, think about the difference between training, rolling, and then rolling in a hypothetical real-life situation. And it's, it's terrifying. I mean, it's completely different. Just having that object there, pretending in my head that it's sharp and life-threatening against someone who's more skilled and, and larger than me, terrifying. It was in those moments that I was like, wow, the self-defense, it's valuable for me. It's valuable for everybody. Knowing how to change the dynamics in that situation, you know, if that's a real knife, that's life or death. That's not just play. Yeah. For sure. It's, it's crazy. Yeah, definitely. It, you know, the aspect of, of punching or having that ability, it changes the perspective. And sometimes it's sometimes I almost get the sense that some of the students like, not all, but there's a few that just like, almost like, eh, show us some technique, show us how to finish. And I said, you know, which I show plenty of, and, and I'm a very foundational. I, you know, like I have a couple purple belts, um, couple blue belts, maybe five, and then a lot of white belts. My specialty has been taking that person that knows nothing and getting them where after a couple of years, whether they get a blue belt or not, they have fundamentals. They have like foundational stuff because Bruce Lee, I think it was Bruce Lee that said a long time ago, would you rather know a thousand kicks and practice at one time or one technique and practice it a thousand times. And, and I tend to show less moves, but the moves that I show after a while, you own those moves. And those are the moves, the most basic kind of combative type of movements that they'll be part of you. Mm -hmm. 
And that to me is one of the most important things because as we age, see the thing is you're, are you in your thirties? 33. Okay. It changes. I tell him, I said, look, even if you're a big, strong guy, I said, eventually, if you stay in this long enough and you want to keep on the mat, you're going to have to change the way you roll. Yeah. Because you're talking about your body surviving. You know, here, I'm going to be 71 in a couple months. And I said, right now, jujitsu. I'm thinking about if I get in a confrontation, I just want to walk away. Right. <laughs> I, I just want to be able to defend myself and and seriously walk away. And because of the last two years, my attitude, because the, some things, I mean, in Santa Monica, it's, there's almost a, sometimes it's kind of lawlessness. There's a lot of homeless. That's right. I've I was had, right on second in California for three years before moving down here. So I, the heart of the pandemic, when that hit my fiance, who's from down South here in Carlsbad, um, we were kind of like, what do we want to do? You know? And, and it was, it was so wild for a couple of weeks there. And the residual effects in that area, it's, it's devastating. Cause I, I trained, uh, at the Equinox on second in Santa Monica for like mm -hmm. six years, that whole street, right there, right next to the promenade. I mean, I went up to visit friends a couple of weeks ago. Businesses still three years later in prime time, Santa Monica, downtown, like excellent retail real estate closed up. It just devastated that area. And it did leave this lasting effect there. It is a little bit like shaky sometimes. Yeah. Well, I live um, maybe what? from the promenade, maybe I live over by, um, you know, Rose and Maine. Yeah. 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 So yeah. I live in as far Santa Monica. If you go out my door and you turn left, you're in Venice. Well, we are like, this is weird. We were neighbors for a while. Yeah. Then that's interesting. Cause I lived in on fifth and Rose. Ah. Venice. So that, you know, the street then by Justa and, uh, gold's gym, that little sure. strip there. Oh, you, I mean, you have to honestly, you have to honestly be a little bit on your like, on your guard when you walk by that area because <laughs> you don't know. Someone literally, they'll jump out and hit you with a skateboard. I mean, I've seen some crazy stuff happen live with my own eyes, and it's interesting talking about this. Like, for me, that's almost the application of all this stuff because if I have the itch to compete, like you said in your book, go compete. And I will, you know, I, I enjoy that aspect of it. But the reason, the deep down reason is that if for some reason I was walking down the street and some lunatic hit me in the back with a skateboard or something, I want to have just enough knowledge to, to handle my pr protecting myself in that situation, not to go out and look for altercations outside of a, a contest setting, but to be able to, be confident in the, my abilities that if something happened, I would be safe. Because of what's happened over the past two years, I, um, I ran into a former student of mine at Costco a couple of years ago. And we were talking about the kind of craziness that's going on, especially back then, you know, when the riots were and the, 
you know. And uh, and he told me, he says, Richard, he said, I carry a knife. And I said, interesting. So he had a little lanyard around his neck and he had a little knife there and then he had a knife in his pocket. And I said, you know, I think I might do that. So I start, I bought a little, you know, 12 inch, no, no, I bought a little three inch blade. You, <laughs> like, know. you open your jacket up and you have like <laughs> all the different. <laughs> this is a knife, mate. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, that's it, a crocodile Dundee reference yeah. for everyone listening who doesn't know <laughs> what that movie is. Go look it up and watch it. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyways, and I've never had to pull it out. And I also, when I walk, I have this little 11 ounce glass Perrier bottle that I refill with water. I don't like using plastic, so I come over, I fill my bottle up, and I keep it in my back pocket. So I feel if nothing else, so if I get attacked, yeah. I'm not going to ask them if they want a drink of water. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe after I knock them out, I'll spill what's left on them. Well, that's that's the funny thing about the... And look, I love training. I love going in and rolling. I love training hard with certain people, and I love training less hard with other people. But the you you can't attach yourself to the idea that if you get into it somewhere in life, whether it's something that you provoke or something that happens to you, it will not start by somebody slapping hands and sitting cross-legged on the ground. <laughs> not how it's going to go down, right? So it's this, you have to remember while you're doing this, that's how you begin out of like respect for the training environment, the dojo, training with your, your teammates or your, you know, whoever else is in there. That's how you start. It's a mutual agreement that now we are going to begin practicing with each other. That's not how it happens out there, right? right? You want to know how to stand up. If you're pushed up against the wall, you need to know how to drive their hands across their face and clench and change the position. Like These things are, are really valuable. And, and it is one thing I do really like about uh, what Hoyler and Gracie Humaita is doing with reinstating the combatives aspect is that mm -hmm. here's something that's applicable for everyone all the time because we don't hop around on our butts, right? We walk around standing. So if you, if anything happens, it's going to start there unless someone trips and they fall and land cross-legged on the ground, right? <laughs> so remembering that, remembering that the, the stand-up, you know, even if, if your school offers striking or anything that is stand-up based it's just another element to the bag of martial arts that's so valuable if your intentions lie within self-defense knowing yeah. that in the back of your pocket jujitsu is still the creme de la creme when it comes down to it right because it equalizes size and athleticism whereas if you know if you're in a, a standing match with someone only that can be a, a big disadvantage did when when you're back in the academy, the original academy, and you're with Horian, Hickson obviously has this separate amazing career going on in the physical representation of jujitsu and mixed martial arts together, right? In Japan and in Valetudo and in the United States and his school also. So there's these two very different representations of their family's art form in the public sphere at the same time. What were your feelings towards 
everything that Hickson represented against everything that, well, not against, but alongside everything that Horian represented for you at that okay. time? I'll answer your question, but I wanted to finish what, like, the thought that I had. Yes, you know, please. I said I carried a knife because I never, yes. I never really want to, to use a knife. And I didn't want to have to get close to somebody. I actually, I was looking for a, the perfect weapon because I, when I walked, I mean, I, I got harassed when I, went, when I went for a walk and I wanted to be able to walk in my neighborhood. So Laser I bought a, a flashlight with a uh, stun gun on it. Still, you have to get close and touch somebody. Oh, and I'm yeah. going, what can, and then I was, I was contemplating a concealed carry. And one of my students is a purple belt firearms instructor. He said, Richard, not in LA. Don't do it. You know, it's just because if you have to use that, man, and I went like, I agree. Yeah. And then he said, get pepper gel or a pepper spray, a good one. Cause you can hit it from 15 feet away and it, you really, you'll incapacitate somebody and you can walk away. You don't have to touch them. Right. So I remember what Horian said, all those things are great. And I remember, and I remember what Henner says, if you have something to deescalate, well, you know, I'm going to do my best to deescalate, but I don't want to at 70 years old, come in and, and have a confrontation with a 30 year old or a 40 year old or, or a 20 year old, just because of what it's going to do. I want to stop it before it even happens. Yeah. So, and so I, I found, in me, the perfect self-defense weapon, because it's easy to use, take it out, back off. They don't back off. They can't see, they can't fight. Right. So, so because I, I didn't want to use a knife, I didn't want to have to hit somebody, but I have no problem if you're coming at me. And I had a, about a month ago, I left town. And before I left, there was a guy out in my alley and he looked at me and he said, oh, I'll fuck you up. And I'm like, really? <laughs> and I had my pepper spray and, you know, and I went like, he started moving toward me and the door, my security door was right there. And I said, you know, I didn't want to go through the hassle. Let the right. guy walked. I just opened the door, walked away. It's like, I don't, I really, you know, I can't emphasize this enough to students. I said, you do not want to fight, you know? I mean, even that, maybe that's a, you know, that's a, a real life representation of your mastery, right? Of getting, who knows, how does Richard Bressler handle that at 28 years old, right? No idea. Maybe completely differently. Maybe m more locked up and afraid in the situation that you don't think to leave. Or, yeah. you know, you just, you don't know what, what it has taught you in how to even be in that situation, see what's happening, go, you know what, not today. My right. door is right here to even see your door, right? Because you're not overwhelmed with nerves and adrenaline and panic and then leave it. It's uh, that's an invaluable lesson probably from hours of time training and, and being in that environment. Yeah. Okay. But okay. So yeah, back to, uh, you know, they, they, what they did, they, they didn't really have anything that was, you know, by the time, that they had their split, you know, I was with Horian and Hickson was doing his thing. They were still doing the jujitsu. Maybe they weren't focusing on the stand up self-defense enough, but Hickson 
always attracted or mostly attracted the younger athletic kind of guys. Mm-hmm. And Horian was always focusing on the business, you know, the professional type. In other words, just to say that, you know, you never know what you're going to, um, I, I guess that there wasn't really a conflict because, you know, back in Brazil, they taught a certain way, but they were also putting their art to challenge. I mean, when Hickson fought Zulu and when Eliu fought earlier, I mean, they were, they were putting their art to the challenge at all the time, but it was just part of like what they were saying. Jiu-jitsu is the most effective art. And that's what it was back then. And, and people say, well, well, would you still choose jujitsu? And I said, of all basic arts that I would choose, that I've seen them, I said, I would still choose jujitsu. Doesn't mean that wrestling's not good. Doesn't mean that Muay Thai's not good. But, and I see some of these guys on Facebook and Instagram and, and how fast they are and they're doing all these little fancy moves. That's the, not the art. It is the person that has mastered that art. When I see some of these guys, I just saw some Bruce Lee's protege, some old video of this guy. It takes a long time to master, and you have to have some kind of a physical attribute to do that. So they're still, they still had the premise, you don't have to be athletic to be able to defend yourself. And that's a big, I think that's a big differentiating factor. And as someone who's studied movement for basically my whole life and, and done it as a career, it's a big difference when you don't have to have athleticism to be proficient. You know, wrestling, you need to be athletic to out-wrestle your opponent. Yeah. Go to any jiu-jitsu academy in the country, in the world, and you will find a person who's so small that you wouldn't notice them when you walk in. And they will be capable, if they're, if they're more skilled, higher belt, of dominating someone of, of greater size. I mean, Dave... David Ruiz is, again, another good example. David is a, a small guy, soaking wet, not the heaviest person in the world. He gives big people very hard times, right? And, and David is wisely you know, selective of who he'll train with, and some days he doesn't roll with us, and some days it's just instruction. But seeing it happen changes your perspective of what you think this, the art's capable of. I don't think that... and perhaps this is my ignorance showing through. I don't think that you could go into a D1 wrestling academy and see someone in their 50s give a hard time to someone <laughs> in their 20s. Right. Even even if you said, okay, well, the 50 let's say the 50-year-old's an ex world-class wrestler and the person who's 25 and just got a D1 scholarship is not as talented. I don't think I, I don't think I don't know for sure, but I don't think that that's going to go very well. <laughs> you know, jujitsu does equalize that field, and that's I think that's what makes it so special. Is it 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 just changes what you think is possible when you see it happen, and you don't really know until you see it happen, and you see it in action, which is such a great name for the tapes anyway. Like even if you go back and watch some of those it's all grainy footage and it's kind of 
funky and, and it's an interesting setting, but you're watching something spectacular happen for the first time ever. Yeah. And that's incredible. For, for, for sure. I mean, it, it's, you know, you said something about wrestling and one of the things that, that I have seen with a lot of the physicality, the sportive aspect of jujitsu where guys are just, they want to compete, compete, compete. And, and, and after they do this, if that's the way they approach jujitsu, one of two things happen. They usually get burnt out and quit. They can't do it for longevity because they're constantly getting injured. It's like college wrestling. They do for a short amount of time. Maybe they might do something a little bit after that Olympics, whatever, but they're not, you're not going to see these guys into their thirties even yeah. wrestle. And that's yeah, the it's, one. it's rare. Yeah. So people are getting injured and I tell them, I said, look, you can do jujitsu, but I said, if you want to be able to last, you have to change your approach. I mean, I, I see these guys and they go, Richard, how did you like, I mean, look, I'm going to be 71. I talked to a lot of guys that have had back, shoulder, knee, hip surgeries. I have not. One is because of the, the body work that, that I've received that's truly special, that's kept me relatively pain-free. And two, it's the approach that another thing that I'm sharing, I'll say, look, if you want to be able to be on the mat, you can't, you can't have that. I mean, I'm seeing guys right now in their, in their thirties and, and into their thirties and early forties. And I go, yeah, my body can't, I said, you have to, you have to change the way you do jujitsu. If you want to stay in the mat, don't get stacked up, give up. Don't, don't hold that triangle. You know, when the guy's stacking you up or an arm lock, and if you feel like you're going to be put on your neck, let go of it. It's not that important. I said, because truly what's the most important thing is preserving your body too. So, you know, you use the analogy of a wrestler. Yeah. If, I mean, how many, how many wrestlers in their fifties are you going to see there even wanting to compete? Yeah. I mean, let it just calling a spade a spade in the in the world of sports like sports and athletic demands are tough on the body we we are not designed to wrestle into our 50s we're not designed mechanically to do jiu-jitsu do jiu-jitsu our whole life we're not designed to ski at a world-class level beyond you know your 30s it's just that's the way life is that's just something to accept it doesn't mean that you have to give up and quit, but there is an approach I think that is necessary in any endeavor in life. Surfing's another example, right? I love to surf. The way that I'm surfing now at 33 is going to have to change as I get older. I accept that and I welcome it and it'll be a journey in and of itself to be able to surf into my 60s and my 70s. And there's guys that do it all the time, right? Maybe they're not paddling into the biggest wave of the set, or they're not surfing for three hours, but they're finding a way to adjust their board length, how much volume's in it, what types of waves that they surf. And you would be a fool to think that you will train jujitsu 15 years from now 
the exact same way that you are. And if you love it, like you love anything, you'll make those adjustments as you go. And one thing that um, one of our coaches, Steve, says, he's like, rest is a discipline, right? And this, this is coming from a, a former professional MMA fighter. That concept that you do have to be as stringent in your recovery, in your rest, in your body work, in your sauna use, in whatever things are actually fueling you to show up to the mats the same person every day, that's very, very important. And I think that for a lot of people that are showing up as like an after work or a before work, that's kind of their thing that day. And forget that there's this really other important recovery component that you have to respect. And you touched on uh, your work with neurosomal work. And so you were introduced to this and then practice it yourself. How integral was that discovery in your longevity on the mats? I tell people all the time, I said, jujitsu has saved my body. I mean, not jujitsu, neurosoma has saved my body. By the way, the guy that developed that is the guy that just called. His name starts with a G. Yeah, Griner. Griner, Griner. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So can you talk to me a little bit about that? What What is neurosoma in a nutshell? What separates that from maybe some of your more traditional chiropractic um, or soft tissue approaches? You know, the best thing that someone could do is really go to neurosoma.com and and read about it. But it was a technique because the guy that developed this was a former NASA engineer and he went to chiropractic college and he his father was a chiropractor. His father messed his, because he had cluster headaches as a kid, his father messed him up and after about the age of 13, he said, I'm not going to adjust you anymore. I'm not helping you. Um, so Griner started studying chiropractic and all of a sudden, I don't know exactly. He has a book called what's really wrong with you, how your muscles affect your, your body, something like that. Um, and it's just how you work on this muscle. Most people, when they work a muscle, They'll try to press and they'll hold the muscle to say it's going to release. He's working on the muscle instead of following the muscle. He'll go and some people will say, oh, it's cross fiber work. It's not like you're just not doing this. It's a specific fingertip technique that you go from insertion connection where the where the muscle connects because it's muscle tendon joint. So if you have a problem in a joint, a lot of times you can really help that muscle. I mean, really help that joint by working on the corresponding muscle to the joint. Right. And so it's a nice theory. And I was introduced to it in 92. And then when the guy that introduced me to it gave me a short treatment, then he gave me his card. And this was, and he said, I charge $100 an hour in 1992. I was like, well, you probably won't see me. But I kept this card, and when I got injured at teaching class, work comp covered it. He didn't want to deal with work comp for obvious reasons. I don't know if you ever dealt with work comp, but horrible. Uh, yeah, it's terrible. Horrible. Horrible so, for for all parties. Yeah. Anyways, this guy said, you know, was struggling for business, and he said, okay, you know, he liked me, whatever, and he did it. And he not only did he help me with the area that I hurt. 
but he got over to this area right through my neck and the shoulder, and he goes, this is your real problem. Because for years, I was having students that were chiropractors adjust me, sometimes three times a week. I could not turn my head further than this without being in pain. I always felt like I was being grabbed. And I remember he started working on me. And after about three months of getting these treatments in the bad area, I, I drove home and I went to check my, you know, tr people. And I went, oh my God, I had full mobility in my neck I haven't had in years. And I used to have neck issues. And I remember that Dave Ruiz was one of the younger guys that would tell me back then, you need to strengthen your neck, Richard. So I started doing these things with a rope and, you know, also, and all I did was tighten up my neck and made it worse. I never did a neck strengthening exercise after that. Just received this work and my neck now is better than it was back then. Why so, do you think this hasn't gained as much? Because it's quite a bit of time from your initial treatments to now. For it to not be, and, and maybe it is more applied in the, the physical therapy or chiropractic setting, but why has it not gained more traction if it seems to be so effective? Well, you have to realize one thing. Jiu-Jitsu had the UFC and also a challenge. Word of mouth, it starts to... People, you know, like maybe put it this way. There's things that I can't tell you right now that there's people that are just being exposed to this work right now. One of my clients introduced me to somebody who I, and I referred to someone else because that's not what I want to do. I'll help somebody, but that's right. I'm a jujitsu teacher. I'll do that also, but. I would rather teach. Um, and it's gaining traction. I have had, like like Brian, the guy that originally worked with me was a chiropractor. Yeah. He was struggling for clients. Well, because I was at the jiu-jitsu school, because I hadn't learned this yet, I was telling people, oh man, you gotta go see this guy. All of a sudden I start, I built Brian's practice. I mean, I really helped the guy. <laughs> he goes, man, so many people now. And about 14 years ago, I had a friend of mine who had a little co-op in Venice that's gone and he hurt his back. And one of the people said, hey, you should really go see Richard. He'll really help your back. Oh man, I've seen everybody, you know, I've seen, you know, whatever. Anyways, his back was in such pain. He goes, okay, I'll go see this guy. The guy comes in my hallway takes him about 10 minutes to walk about, I don't know, 50 yards. And he walks out and he goes, wow. You know, it's not that he was healed, but he just went like, oh my God, I think you really found, he says, you really did something different. Yeah. And so the guy came back to me for 10 years. I mean, he just, he goes, Richard, this is it. Muscles, tendency says not, it's not adjusting. I don't want to make any enemies. I don't want any emails. But right. remember, the guy that, that that called me was a former chiropractor. The guy that taught me was a chiropractor who didn't do adjustments. Another person that I traded treatments with 
was a chiropractor who didn't do adjustments. I know three or four other people that are chiropractors that just do this treatment alone because they realized that the muscles are very important. I'm not against chiropractic. I had a chiropractic adjustment about a month ago. One of a guy that I met who lives up in Seattle area, you know, I worked on his shoulder and he, he gave me an adjustment. I wanted to see what he did, but it's the muscles. If you keep, if you adjust something, your muscles have a memory. It likes being in a certain place. So the kind of technique that this guy did was to relax the muscle. And he has a machine called the biopulsor, which he's not producing right now, which is so relaxing and it's so helpful that that coupled with this technique has kept me surgery free. And I'm not saying you get fixed once. I mean, it, it, it's maintenance. I mean, right. we eat, it's maintenance. We shower, it's maintenance. We need to have our muscles worked on to maintain. And people go like, sometimes I felt like, well, they were doing this. I'm doing this. I'm telling you because I need clients. I don't need clients. I don't want clients. Right. It's, it's very physically demanding because I use my hands and I have pain in my hands. So I have to work on my arms just to get rid of, just so I can see a person I have to work on my own. So anyways, it's definitely something that should be maybe addressed kind of head on, like, it, it, especially if you're in this for the long haul, you have to be taking care of your body and you have to find something you, you really like, you really, really do. And, and, and it's not just true for jujitsu. It's true for everything. else. Everything. Right? If you're a runner, you need to address soft tissue. If you're a wrestler, especially, but if you just do jujitsu, and hope that jujitsu will hurt and heal you, it's not going to work like that. I mean, you have to be proactive in what you're doing and, and soft tissue work. And it sounds like neurosoma are really important because to your point earlier, if you have a problem in a joint, it's typically not the joint that has the issue. It's related from somewhere else and referred up or down the line. So, people with knee issues, right? And jujitsu is horrible to our knees. That's going to usually lie up closer to the hip or down towards the ankle. It's not going to be directly on the joint. So you have to have something in place. And if you don't know, try to do some research. Cause I mean, this can be years, right? On the longevity of your career in, in this art form or, or just practicing it. But that's something that's equally as important as the time on the mats. Because you've right. got to think about it from the macro view, right? Do you want to be doing this in five years without having neck surgery, without double hip replacement, without shoulder surgery, without tendonitis? Those are real things that are going to happen because the sport is extremely demanding on your body. You are rolling around on the ground, getting smashed around by another person. It's That's horrible to our, our bodies. So right. I, I loved reading how much of the book you did dedicate to just talking a little bit about this experience and how instrumental that was to be able to still be teaching right at 70 and have more years down the line that you're going to be continuing to share this with people because you're taking care of your body and you took a lot of responsibility on yourself to figure it out. 
it wasn't one person came by and said, oh, hey, I'll give you a treatment. You're like, oh, cool. It's free. I'll do it. it you were proactive about it. And I spend so much freaking time trying to help my body recover for the next day. Even at, you know, at 33, because I, I get it. I totally get everything you're talking about. And it, it was, I was, it was great to see that part of it was dedicated just to that. Granted, it's right up my alley, but I, I want people to know it is so important to recover. Right. Well, you know, I'll, I'll give you, cause you said something, you said a person has tendonitis. Well, let's, mm -hmm. let's think about that for a second. If a person has tendonitis, basically anything with an itis, it's inflammation. Right. So where does the inflammation and the tendon come from? The tendon the is attached to the muscle. Yeah. So it means you're overusing and stressing that muscle. So people say, well, traditional um, physical therapy, they'll tell you, well, it's because this one muscle over here is not firing. So if you take and you do the exercise, maybe you'll do an exercise and you change it, it, you can't strengthen one little thing thinking that you're going to get it rid of an inflammation. So that's where it came to. All of a sudden, you start to work on the muscle. And what this guy who I told you about who came to me, when he first came to me, I, was, I, I wasn't very busy at all. I was actually, I had a, a very rich, wealthy client who actually took me on a cruise to the Caribbean with him. And my job was just, you know, he paid for a trip for me. And then I was his personal, you know, and this is like 15 years ago. But when he got back, you know, he took me to Vegas, put me up in the, a nice suite, you know, and all, for the weekend. And I was just so I could just treat him. Provide, yeah, body work. And, but the guy was kind of a rageaholic. <laughs> and dealing with people like that, I didn't want, you know, and then his An energy other, drain. Yeah. The, and his family too, they, they were just very high maintenance. And I finally had to just like, let them go. And I'm one like, wow. And I wasn't very busy. And, but this guy that I helped because he had a little food co-op and I helped him people, they'd go, Oh man, my neck or my back. Oh, go see Richard. Go see Richard. Yeah. This guy within six months, I'd said, okay, dude, you don't have to tell people anymore. I said, please, I'm, I'm handle, you know, I, I have as much business as I can handle and I don't want more, you know, so it's a small, it's word of mouth. People are hearing about it. It's something that's really, it's valuable. I hurt myself back in 06 where I walked with a cane for two months and I had pain radiating down my hip into my toes. And I was told by different people, maybe cortisone, Maybe you need a microsurgery. You know, I never got an MRI. And I said, you know what? If I'm going to do this, I want to put it to the test. I'm only going to do this therapy. And I got past it. And I still, so my mom broke her hip two years ago. At 95, I thought, well, they say at that age, after you break the hip, a person that age, they have about a year and they die. My mom now is two years She's 96. She lives in Washington. I go up and visit her and she's had pain in her hip and I'm trying to figure it out. I go, why can't you find somebody up there, a chiropractor, a body worker or something? I, I went up there. She 
she her neck was frozen. She couldn't lift her arm up and she had to lift her leg to get out of the car. My mom still drives, by the way, lives alone. So I worked and on her. She's I mean, by your your group will battled and survived cancer as well. Right? And she, now she she has an, she has another cancer going the alternative route too, slow growing cancer. So my mom is she's a warrior. But so I went up there and I just came back. And when I was there, she said, yep, I can move my neck now. She goes, look, I can move my arm above here. And she wasn't needing to lift her leg to get out of the car. And I said, you know, it's because she goes, how come I'm not better yet? And I said, mom, who knows what they cut? The nerves, the muscles, yeah. whatever. And so I would work on my mom's hip just to get her out of pain for a certain amount. And it breaks my heart because when I moved her out of here because I thought Washington would be a better place because my sister lives up there. And frankly, I didn't think my mom was going to be around this long. And I said, if she needs help, it'll be best. And now, you know, so anyways, I'm going back up there again and she's seeing someone else, hopefully to try to help her. But the work has done a great job and there's a few people that do this if it gets really popular we're going to be overwhelmed with work because the people that i know have pretty full schedules right now doing this because there's not enough people doing this because the guy who developed it is a little eccentric thank you yeah <laughs> okay typically i mean with the alternative health medicines i think it's one one of the challenges right it takes an open mind to think of an alternative that's part of the prerequisite of a lot right. of open-minded thinking to come up with a non-western medicine approach to something it takes an open mind a lot of times the people that have that open mind and the genius alongside it produce a pretty eccentric character that's hard to get a lot of people <laughs> behind it's just kind of there you, know, you go it's the rub and it's a challenge but the good news i think for offerings like that is that if you can take someone from pain to pain free there is no more profound experience for someone living to go through if you can't move your neck and someone frees that freeze that's crazy you think it's all you can think about it blows your mind when you have something that's painful and you go in for a treatment of something and the person by performing what appears to be snake oil fixes it, it's so memorable. And that's why the word of mouth does spread so quickly with these yeah. things because it's pain to pain free. It's not like personal training where you take someone from baseline to stronger or in, a, in unable to move to more movement proficient. Those are all subjective to their emotions. Maybe they're excited about fitness that day and so they like it. Maybe they're bummed out and they don't want to work out, so none of it means anything to them. But if someone has a busted knee and you make it not busted and they didn't even have to go under the knife, it's a game changer. That's why I, soft tissue work is so – it's kind of like way in the outfield for a lot of people, which is ironic in a place like jiu-jitsu where it's almost entirely isometric, which is going to create tons of tension – and inflammation near the joints. And so we're, we all have busted fingers and knees and ears and elbows. 
and yet people aren't putting yeah yeah I'm not, exactly no one's putting emphasis on taking care of the muscles that are doing all the contractions and all the positions anyway right and, and realize one thing depending because i don't want this anyone to think this is a quick fix i still right. get treated and because i i've been doing something my whole well or for the last 40 years and i have developed some certain chronic situations i mean when you if you look at my spine you'll go like whoa but the main thing is and i'm not saying i'm going to correct anyone's spine but i'm i'm out of pain and that's the thing it's not so much if you're young enough and you're not chronic enough you can get the body to be a certain way but yep. it's more important if it's chronic you know people like they might do like something have a chronic thing and they come and try five visits and they go, you know, it didn't work for me. I go, wait a second. You really have to give it a, a a chance because you have a chronic thing, chronic that's built up for years. That's like yeah. saying going and take five jujitsu classes and going to the UFC. Let me know how you do. Yeah, horribly. And that's why uh, you know that's why people struggle so much to make changes in nutrition because you're not you can't just go on a crash diet and change your habits for forty years. This is psychological hardwiring that predisposes you to make bad yes. choices about food, right? Yes. You're not the overweight person who wants to get in better shape isn't consciously choosing all of the bad food that they're eating. And that's a big misconception I think that a lot of like people in the training space have is that, oh, you just need to, you know, harden down your choices, choose better. Dude, it's so much more complicated than that. It is addiction just with food, not substance. It's the same psychological hardwiring that challenges that person to make the right choice, even if the right choice is there. For Richard, doing when Richard was doing cocaine and drugs and trying to not do that, you could have all the best choices in front of you. You could live with Horry and Gracie, who's not doing any of that, who's hand-pressing apple juice in the morning and it can literally be in the same room as you and you're going to make the wrong choice because psychologically that's the way that your brain is wired in that moment and i, I think people need to understand to make a change which is why jujitsu is so beautiful it's so long it takes 15 years to get your black belt that's a big commitment for a lot of people that are starting that's more than half their life that they've been alive right and for some of us that are getting into it later that's a big chunk of time. And so if you can wrap your head around that type of scale, then maybe some of the other things will start to make sense. And I actually, I wanted to ask you about that because I was thinking a lot about your journey through in towards like reducing drug use and finding more frequency of jujitsu. But there was a, a big period where it seemed like those things were overlapping. So you had habits and behaviors in your life that you, vocally didn't want to be there anymore but they still were at the same time that you're also increasing your frequency of this art and the lessons from Horian and, and the day-to-day -day changes and kind of how life is going what was that process like in the transition away from those behaviors that you're recognizing but before that they were realized well I didn't realize this was going to be so deep um that's what happens on here. <laughs> Hang on a second. Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, uh, that 
was that was good. That was good. <laughs> you know, I was. You know, one one of the things that I say in like the book, it says, "How Gracie Jiu Jitsu saved my life." Jiu Jitsu had to do with changing my life. But one of the things I didn't know that would happen is when I became, when Hori and I became roommates, you know, he had talked me, I mean, six months before about probably like, look, the very first class he told me about, you know, he made me a fresh glass of, I don't know, watermelon juice, you know, which was like amazing. And, uh, and then after that time when we're in my, you know, when I'm crying in my car and he says, I want you to think about what you're putting in your body, you know, he was planting seeds, you know, and then, I mean, I, and I'd said to him something, I remember, I remember like what my response was, what does it matter what I put in my body? I'm just going to go home and do drugs anyhow. And that, and then he responded, well, that's the reason why you've got to give yourself a chance. Anyways, so months later, I'm moving with Orient and I feel just, he just says, eat meals with me. You know, so I started eating meals. I, every single meal, you know, a lot of the meals we ate together. And I saw he was doing stuff, having papaya with dates and whatever. And, you know, a lot of fruit back then, which I'm not a big fruit advocate anymore. But I started changing. I just started eating with him. And he, I was being programmed. I was developing new habits just by, because I was living with him. You know, where the average person would come and say, you know, have a meal with Horian and they go in, they go home and do their thing. Right. They're not I, getting that exposure. That's right. So after a year's time, I remember after four months, I think it was four or five months. And I think I referred to, you know, I was a Twixaholic. Yeah, you know, and I mean, I, I literally would walk into whatever the store was back in the market. And every single time I would get a Twix candy bar. I mean, it was just, you know, and I remember the first time I walked by them and I went and I noticed them and I didn't grab one. And I went, huh, you know, because I had dates yeah. and, you know, and so I'll, and I'll, then I would go into the store, you know, a couple weeks later and couple more days would go by. I wouldn't grab me a Twix. I s slowly stopped drinking Coca-Cola. I stopped doing all these other little things. And I was just like, wow. So, but I was developing, a, I, I was in a very unique situation. And then after, I mean, after a year of living with Horan, and then when Hiran was born, just before he was born, he asked me, you know, to move out. Because, you know, we had a two-bedroom house and him and Suzanne and Hiran, you know, it, it wouldn't work out. Yeah. So even when I went up the street, I moved from Hermosa to North Redondo. I, and I was still doing drugs. But I was eating a certain way. And I, they weren't. And my goal was to be healthy. I kind of right. like wanted to be healthy. And then I realized, without realizing it, drugs have no place in your life if you want to be healthy. They're, they, they're not conducive yeah. to each other. Right. So 
few more months go by, no more quaaludes, no more cocaine. Still smoke pot, but pot didn't take me out of my head. If anything, it put me back into my head. Right. But, and, and it probably after I met Dr. Dossie and all of a sudden something clicked. I don't know what the heck he did to me, but he did a number on my head. And I remember all of a sudden I stopped smoking pot. I was like, how the hell did this happen? But and was it like a cold turkey from then on? Uh, well, the quaaludes and cocaine were slowly. I stopped. But then yeah. the pot, I was just, I slowed down. You know, I, I wouldn't get, because I mean, I used to wake up to a bong every day. I mean, yeah. that was what, that was my habit for years. Is it strange how the, like the stigma around, I mean, you think about like <laughs> marijuana in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and 90s, and you've been able to witness its entire narration change. And to, to look back on that, even kind of the way you write about it, it, you know, it's grouped in with the other things, right? It's like quaaludes, cocaine, pot. They're all kind of of the same ilk of problem. But now you look around today, I mean, you can walk down Santa Monica, you buy weed down the street. Is it strange knowing the effect that those substances were having on your life and then watching in real time as the perception of them changes? Yeah, well, see, I'm not like, I really think that cocaine and quaaludes had no place. I don't feel the same about pot. I have, okay. I have, a, I have a student of mine who started with me at the Gracie Academy and now is a black belt years later. And he actually runs, grows and dispenses legally, you know, has a, a cannabis, sells CBD and THC. And, uh, you know, and I've used the, the tincture, you know, the CBD THC tincture. I won't do it like I used to do it back then because I did it to get high, but I wanted to see any medicinal effects. I wanted to see the effect on sleep. So I might do it a, a little bit, but it's not like I walk around going, dude, like I, I mean, waking up, waking up and hitting a bong. It's very different <laughs> than having a little bit of a, some tincture for like recovery purposes. Yeah. Just yeah. like the visual image of the dude who rolls out of bed and just <laughs> clears a bong. And then the guy who's like dropping, you know, uh, herbs in his mouth. Yeah. Very, very, two very different people. Yeah. But, it, you know, it, it was people, they, they can't believe that, that that was me when I tell them. They go, well, Mr. Straight Lace, Mr organic grass-fed beef and organic food and don't drink coke anymore and don't have french fries and don't eat the the standard american diet i mean you know like yeah. this was you like you know it's just it, i i always want i wonder though in those situations like so my my father's been sober for 10 years this is his 11th year from alcohol and it's it, it was interesting reading this part about like how much Horian impacted you to change without telling you that you had a problem, without telling you that you needed to change, just kind of being an example around you, letting Richard be Richard, letting Richard make mistakes and recognize that he didn't want to, because it was very opposite of my experience with my father when I was younger. 
where I was always trying to get him to quit. I was trying to tell him he had a problem. It was all active, me to him. It never worked. And it wasn't until he decided on his time, based on a bunch of factors, that it was time to stop. And it was such a profound stop. It was done, cold turkey, done, 11 years ago. And it was really interesting reading about you going through this process of knowing that you didn't want to be doing it anymore, having this good example in your life who, who wasn't, but also wasn't really pressuring you to change. And then I wondered, because my dad's an insane CrossFit athlete, an addict, total addict of fitness now, do you think that personality, that addictive personality infatuated with, with drugs and partying, like replicated itself in the world of jujitsu and you became obsessed about the art itself? No. Not at all. I, it, it just, one, I, I loved doing jujitsu. I just, there was something about, you know, Horian's enthusiasm was very infectious. <laughs> My enthusiasm is very, I can't tell you of all the years later when I've seen people come into places and they go, oh, you're the reason that I started jujitsu. I mean, because I have that same passion for this art that he encouraged me with. So, and as far as you're talking about your dad, because we all, we have people in our life that we want to change. We see the destructive behaviors. And one of the things that it took for me is Dr. Dossi was a huge factor because I remember going in to see him when I was having issues with fear. And he said to me something very profound. He says, well, what do you want? And I says, well, I don't want this. And I don't want that. And I don't. And he says, okay, good. got it. He says, so what do you want? And I thought, wait a second, why is this guy asking me? I just told, told him. Yeah. You know, so he went back around three or four times and he finally said to me, he says, okay, Richard, look. He says, I've asked you three or four times what you want and all you've been able to do is tell me what you don't want. He said, that's great. I understand. Now tell me what you want. And I just kind of went, well, I said, I don't know. And he said, there you go. He says, when you figure that out, he said, then your life will start to change. It'll be that awareness. That So one of the first things I thought about is I want to be healthy. Yeah. Okay, what does it take to be healthy? Well, proper sleep, proper exercise, good diet. You know, there's, and I, people, some people really go, like, there's no room for a healthy person who ingests poisons in their body on a regular basis, which means yeah. no Coca-Cola. You know, people go like, I'm going to hear from Coke now. I guess they don't want me, you know, they don't want to sponsor me. Yeah, your contract's over. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, so I th that was my goal. I just, this is what I wanted. I want to be healthy. What does it take to become healthy? In other words, you take, ask yourself an outcome question and keep building on that. And so... If the person wants to quit something, they have to replace it. You can't, because you can't have a negative goal. 
Because if, well, I, I'm going to go on a diet. Okay, so what can I eat? No chocolate cake. Oh, no chocolate cake. No chocolate cake. No chocolate cake. That's, it's like, that's what you, you might work for a couple of days and go, God, I just want some chocolate cake. Yeah. So, you know, and then to how to deal with the, when those cravings come up, when, when all of us, if you, and if you do say, oh God, I screwed up, whatever, whatever it, it was so psychological of how you, how you deal with your own miss your, your own challenges. I used to work with, um, Hicks and Gracie's first wife, Kim, her and I were really good friends. She, I did these rebirthing treatments or a breathing thing. And she helped me. She said, Richard, you really need a lot of forgiveness in your life. And so I focused on forgiveness. I wrote it down. I mean, I wrote down for a month. I wrote, I Richard forgive 70 times a day. And that, so when I did screw up on my diet, if I did get a craving, instead of beating myself up, all of a sudden this voice that came in said, it's okay, Richard, I forgive you. Let it go. I love you. Let it go. And that's that little voice that you learn to shut off by replacing it. You have like the little battle going on inside of you to change behavior. One of the toughest things to, to do. So, but it takes by setting that goal and then being easy on yourself when you're going for the goal. That's the thing. You got to be easy. You got to be loving toward yourself. And that's why I think I made a reference to the book when people go, I know I shouldn't have done that. And I'll say, yep. don't, don't should on me or anyone else or yourself. It's, section. it's called don't should yourself. <laughs> that's right. So, but yeah, it's that framing, that mindset, it's so crucial. And having been a part of clients going through a weight loss journey or, or an overhaul in their fitness, it is, it's very tough. And a lot of it starts with everything that you just said. It's this, when you approach it in a negative framework, you give yourself such a hill to climb instead of focusing on things that you can give yourself adjustments that you're capable of making and goals that are realistic within that. Like by you setting the goal to be healthier, you solved a lot of the problems instead of setting a goal to quit doing cocaine, a goal to quit doing coilets, a goal to stop smoking weed. Now you got 15 goals and they all start with don't. As soon as you take one of those away, what are you going to give yourself? What reward are you going to get? And this happens with food all the time. People say, I, I want to quit eating carbs. Okay, well, that's one third of the macronutrient profile. So what the hell else are you going to eat? And then they, if they take that away, now what? How long are you going to take that away from yourself? How about let's, how, can we change our behavior around carbohydrates? Can we aim to choose more vegetables in this setting? Or is there something that you can swap on your plate for something else that you like? What things can you give yourself? Right. Keep giving yourself and forgiving yourself instead of stripping things away and making it harder. And that is a psychological adjustment. It's 100% a psychological change. And that's why I think a lot of the, the neuro-linguistic approach makes sense because you're constantly conditioning yourself all the time based on what, you, what comes out of your mouth and what stays in your head. Because when we think, we talk to ourselves all the time. Right, you're saying words in your brain, or you're seeing pictures, vocal. or hearing yeah, things, or, something. Totally. And if those are negative, it's going to affect how your life is. 
So if you can learn how to impact those, change the way that you look at them, see them through a different light, I mean, it can be the difference between being here today with this incredible story to tell in a book and thousands of lives who've changed based on being able to have been taught by you or never getting out of your own way. And it's, it's, a, it's amazing that everything in the book is such, it is such a cool story. I really do, I really do love it. When you look into the future, what do you feel like, Juju? <laughs> oh my God, you have it too. Oh, I was just, I was just plugging. It sounded like a Perkis segue. Into, by the way, he's it talking plug, about yeah, this yeah. book, guys, right here. This yeah. book, right? If you can't okay. see it in my screen, it's in Richard's screen. It's also in the show notes. It'll be on the Instagram. It'll be everywhere. Uh, okay, I'm sorry. When you look, when you th yeah, now that you've destroyed my my plan of thought, <laughs> when you look out into the, into the future and the next generations of Gracies, how much this sport has spread across the UFC across all these different platforms, what do you think will maintain? Gosh, man, I, that's a, that's a really nice question. And I just, I, I, I really don't know how to, uh, <laughs> I, I don't know how to answer it. Well, that's what you get for, for messing me up there. There's a question. <laughs> I can't answer about that. Um, you know what? Yeah. What what lessons do you think? Oh, hold sorry. True? Yeah. Or <laughs> themes that you would like to see stay as uh, it, cause it's going to grow, right? It's going to grow more people every year. Jiu-jitsu. Get inspired to do it. They're going to have an athlete that they look up to. They're going to see an event live. It's going to change their life. They're going to get bullied at school and they're going to start. So it's inevitably going to continue to grow. It really does feel like combat sports, the art of jujitsu it's all in its infancy right now really and growing like crazy what are your views on it um i'm big proponents of the the gracie combatives i mean the way that i was taught um the guys that are you know, the brothers, I mean, Hickson still does that, his thing with self-defense, because even though he was a fighter, he still has focused on the self-defense aspect of it. Um, and Hoyler and, and all the Gracie family. I mean, I'm close to the, to the boys down at Gracie University and I go down and, and I'll help, you know, with classes when I'm there. And, and, I, and I'm attracted to that because of, of what they, how they teach the self-defense aspect. And I'd like to really see that at some level, at some place, at least having people having an option to see, to help keep that alive and, and uh, replicated and duplicated, you know, and I'm assuming that, you know, because, um, Dave Ruiz is your teacher. Yep. Yeah. And Dave, them, yeah. yeah. So Dave came from the Gracie Academy. So, and I'm assuming that, that the teachings that, that you get come from, and he follows that close enough anyhow. Yeah. So that kind of teaching becomes as popular as it possibly can be because years ago when Horian, 
you know, when all of a sudden after the first UFC and people, black belts start coming up from Brazil, I went like, wow, there's so many guys. And I thought that everybody was being taught the same way I was. And I thought when Horian would say, oh, Richard, you know, they, you know, they really, you know, he would kind of like criticize. And I thought he was criticizing to keep the students at the academy. And he was criticizing because for the same thing that I found out when I went into different schools and I watched black belts teach, I went like, yikes, you know, it, like, yeah, guys are learning. I'm just, I was taught at a certain level. So, you know, when you're taught by the best, you think everybody is being taught like that. It's, right. It's, yeah. Yeah. You don't, you don't have any compared like that. To. Yeah. It's yeah. not like that. So when I, when I see it and I just kind of like went, wow, you know, it's, I mean, that's why this one guy that was a black belt now who starred with me, followed me to Beverly Hills Jiu Jitsu. Um, when I left Beverly Hills Jiu Jitsu, we lost contact. He went over and trade with the Machados and then he moved up, ended up with Par at Paragon where he is right now in central California. And he contacted me a couple of years ago and he said, Richard, are you still doing jujitsu? I said, yeah, this is what I'd like to, you know, come down and take a private with you. And frankly, I barely remembered the guy and, and he's a black belt. And I said, how old are you? Steve Maxwell. <laughs> no, Steve is my age. Oh, I was like, and I'm friends with Steve. Gotcha. But this guy is central California. I go, how old are you? He goes, I'm 45. I'm going, okay, look, first of all, I said, I'll have to tell you one thing right now. I'm not sparring with you. And he goes, I don't want to, <laughs> you know, because the guy's 45 years old. <laughs> You're like, I'll pepper spray. <laughs> yeah, I'll pepper spray you, dude. You know, he's 175, 80 pounds. So here, here he's 30 years younger or so. These headphones are yeah. really starting to bother me. Um, no, we're, we're good. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so 30 years younger, 40 pounds heavier. And he's a black belt and I'm going like, dude. And he goes, look, I don't, I'm, I'm not coming down to spar. I want to, I want you to teach me the way you taught me back then. So he came down and he, and it's like, he took the group class the night before and he had a private with me and he goes, this is what I want. We went over the self-defense. We went over some, the Kimura. He was just like, I said, show me how you do it. And then I did it. And he goes, wow. He said, that's what I'm missing. So, it's the little things like that. I had a I had a student to come to me after the book. Just people who contact me because they read my book, a black belt and a purple belt came in and took a private class from me. And again, I said, "Look, dude, I'm not I'm not here to spar." And they go, "Richard, you know, it's like I have to get out of my head because, you know, these guys are, let's say, close to half my age. The one guy is two forty. The black belt." Third degree black belts, 240. The purple belt was 185. And I said, I'm, you know, and they said, look, just. So I came down, they, they had a class with me, a private class. I taught them the collar choke. I taught them the rear naked choke. And I taught them the triangle the way I do it. And their minds were blown. And they said, can we do this again? Because I thought, oh, you're going to do this. And, and I said, yeah, we can do it again. Because they just wanted to see the essence without using power. Everybody yeah. has this thing. I said, you don't have to impress me. I just want to see what you do. Right. How can I gauge? You know, like when I went to Horian's office five years ago, he said, show me the collar choke. 
He goes, almost perfect. I'm going like, dude, you showed me the color choke. And he took my second hand and he pushed it back a little further. And he goes, now you got it. And that's what I do is I, I'm taking what you already know and it's showing you how to make it a little better. That's, that's what I want to do. I want to help people have the essence of jujitsu to make it just that little, because we need to get more technical. As we lose our strength and speed, all we have left is our technique. So that's what Wise I'm... Wise words, man. Yeah, so Richard. Anyways, this was supposed to be an hour and a half. I know. I feel bad for your, your, your ears and everything. But uh, honestly, <laughs> thank you. Thank do you I get so paid much. overtime I, I, for this? You do, yeah. We'll, okay, we'll get you a, a bonus here. Um, <laughs> and we'll plug the book. Uh, I, I really do appreciate you taking two hours. This is a, a conversation that is, is special and I'll never forget. And I, I appreciate you taking the time to do this. I could talk for six, but <laughs> I, I get I could without being these. in the chair. Yeah, it's the chair. I can't be in the chair longer than like two hours. It's kind of my limit. But um, yeah. thank you so much uh, for doing this. My pleasure.